Good evening, church family. Sorry, we were a little somber over there, so let me get here. Uh, for all of you Astros fans in the house, I want to, uh, we, we uh, Beth and I went down, we uh, went and saw my sister-in-law today at the Capitol. Uh, she works down there, and uh, there was a resolution in both the House and Senate today to honor the Astros for winning the World Series. And so I just want to assure you, if you're an Astros fan, you really did win because I saw the trophy. So it's not a trick. It's not a, it's not a media campaign to mess with you. You really did win the World Series. And my sad little Rangers heart just remembered how our outfielder couldn't play a fly ball, and we've still never won one. So congrats to you Astros fans. Uh, I There were two players there. I don't have a clue who they are because... I don't know athletes' faces, so uh, anyways, but they were there holding the trophy. They did not look super excited, so, <laughs> but anyways, uh, we are walking through a, uh, again, just just remind you, we're walking through what if you were to use more of a technical term, a harmony of the Gospels, uh, which essentially just means as we've been looking at these, at the four Gospels, each one of the four Gospels is written with it for, uh, from a specific perspective specific perspective to a specific audience. Uh, Every detail in every one of the four Gospels is entirely accurate, truthful, factual, right, but they were not necessarily written where every story is in chronological order like you and I think of a a modern-day biography. So what we've been doing is having looked at each one of those four Gospels and kind of understanding what makes each of them unique, we've been walking for about the last two months through Uh, essentially a chronological walk through the life of Christ. And we come tonight to the final about nine days of Christ's life prior to the resurrection. But the last week prior to his crucifixion is what we're going to walk through tonight. Uh, It's very possible to to sketch a a fairly uh, substantial um, recounting of the last week of Christ's life, uh, because so much, and we looked at this with the Gospels, that the emphasis in an ancient biography, the emphasis in that style is on how a person died. And in fact, the bulk of the Gospels really spend the bulk of their time looking at this last week of Christ's life, what he did, what he taught, and what went there. Of course, uh, this, this last week will pick up, it will, there will be a brief mention of what takes place on Friday afternoon, a week prior to the crucifixion. And then we, we begin with Palm Sunday. We see things on that Sunday. We see things on that Monday. We see things on that Tuesday. Wednesday, we don't know what happened. Or sorry, we see things on that Wednesday. It's Thursday. No, say about Wednesday. Sorry, I'm getting my, getting my notes confused. Wednesday, we don't know what happened. Jesus went to Wednesday night church, ate some food, and had fellowship. Uh, just not in there. Uh, and then th- Thursday, obviously, we know what happens Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and then praise God for Sunday. So uh, we're going to walk through this tonight. Uh, just remind you as we do this, our, 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 my goal is, and this is always the challenge, my goal on when what we're doing right now on Wednesdays is really to just give a broad, it's a broad flyby of what's there which means we may go and look a little bit more at one part, but we may just kind of mention and fly by another part. And I simply say that to say, and I, and I do this every week, but especially in this last, in, in what we see in the Gospels here, there is so much here. So please do not confuse our flyover tonight for, 
oh, well, since pastor only highlighted this, this, and this, those are the only important things. They know it's all important. We just, you're not gonna give me six hours tonight. So uh, we're, we're, gonna, we're gonna work our way through. Now, let me bring up the right map here as we move. Yeah, so we're, what we're gonna do is we're gonna move. If you'll, if you'll look with me, uh, let's pick up in John chapter 11. Gospel of John chapter 11. And we're going to pick up, uh, right, right, so we're going to pick up in verse 47. It says, therefore, the chief priests, the Pharisees convened a council and were saying, what are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you for one man to die for the people and that the whole nation not perish. Now, he did not say this on his own initiative, but being the high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation, not only for the nation also, but in order that he might gather together all those uh, into one children of God who are scattered abroad. By the way, Caiaphas, obviously, as we'll see, Caiaphas is not prophesying that because he is a fan of Jesus. Caiaphas is going to be one of the leaders to crucify Jesus. But then look at what it says in verse 53. So from that day on, they planned together to kill Jesus. Now remember, this is on the heels of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. And he hasn't just raised Lazarus from the dead. Jesus raised a couple other people from the dead in, throughout his ministry, but it's been people who have, who have freshly died. So if you wanted to, you could come in and try to give and go, well, Jesus, you didn't really raise that person from the dead. You just, you know, it's a little trickery. Lazarus on the other hand, it's very clear he had been dead for four days. He's, he's been dead long enough that Jewish custom and tradition that would have said the spirit hovers over the body for three days, deciding whether to reenter or to leave, that was gone. There was no hope there. Four days, the body has started to decompose. It's smelling, it's rotting. Lazarus is undeniably good and dead. And Jesus raises them back to life in the village of Bethany, right outside Jerusalem. And it is the talk of everyone. How are you tonight? It's even the Pharisee. What are we going to do? And of course, catch the irony. We talked about that least. What are we going to do? He's doing all these signs and miracles and wonders that attest to his power. What are we going to do about this? This is a problem. So it says they decide from that day on, you've seen several times where they've wanted to kill him. This is the final act. They are going to kill him. It says, therefore, Jesus no longer continued to walk publicly among the Jews. He went away into the wilderness. That's where we left off last week. Then it says, verse 55, now the Passover of the Jews was near and many went up to Jerusalem out of the country before the Passover to purify themselves. So they were seeking for Jesus and they were saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think that he will come into the feast at all? Now, the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where Jesus was, he might report it so they might seize him. Jesus, therefore, six days before Passover, came to Bethany where Lazarus, whom Jesus, uh, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus has raised, had raised from, from the dead. And so then this picks up into, into that arrival. As people begin arriving, that's going to be a week prior to uh, to Jesus coming. Now, uh, both Matthew, Mark, or, or uh, I guess all four Gospels record different aspects. Uh, since we're here in, um, 
Since we're here in John, let's just stay in John chapter 12, but Matthew records it in Matthew 21, Mark and Mark 11, Luke and Luke 19. John says in chapter 12, verse 12, on the next day being Sunday, about let's back up, verse nine, the large crowd of the Jews then learned that Jesus was there in Bethany and they came not only for Jesus's sake, but that they also might see Lazarus whom he raised from the dead. The chief priests also planned to put Lazarus to death also because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and were believing in Jesus. So there is some kind of mass movement. I mean, this is the talk of Jerusalem. This is the talk of not just Jerusalem, but remember these Jews are coming from the countryside. This is spreading like wildfire through whatever the first first century uh, Judean version of social media is. This is the talk of the town. This is the news. This is, and people are flocking. We want to see this Jesus. And we can't see Jesus. We want to see Lazarus. We want to see the guy that died, that was dead for four days and is back. And so this is a problem. Many people are believing. So on the next day, verse 12, the large crowd who had come to the feast when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem took the branches of palm trees. They went out to meet him and began to shout, Hosanna, Of course, the other gospels record, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Jesus finding a young donkey. We know from the other gospels that that young donkey was actually prophesied in the Old Testament. And Jesus told his disciples, hey, go into this town. You're going to find a donkey tied up. You're going to find a a a, a young donkey tied up. Tell the owner, my master has need of him. So there's more to it there that John just summarizes. Uh, Jesus finding a young donkey set on it written for his written, fear not daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming seated on a donkey's colt. These things his disciples did not understand at first, but when Jesus was glorified, they remembered that these things were written of him and that he had done these things to him and that they had done these things to him. So the people who were with him, who when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to testify about him. For this reason also, the people went and met him because they had heard him and he had performed the sign. And so here, here's what you have. This is, this is what we would consider taking place on Palm Sunday. This is the triumphal entry where you have all these Jews who've come in from the surrounding countryside who are, who are all of it. Jesus, we've got to go see him. We've got to talk to him. They, they are recognizing Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. There is a, 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 a messianic fervor at a fever pitch. Now, obviously, if, if you're steeped in Bible knowledge, you know where we're going tonight. In five days' time, how many of that same crowd are going to go from yelling, Hosanna, Hosanna, to crucify, crucify? But here's, here's in this moment, and, and just imagine how fast a week can turn. Imagine what the Pharisees are feeling, and we'll see kind of this pattern as we, as we gloss over tonight, or as we fly over tonight. The Pharisees, you imagine there, we want to kill this man. How on earth are we going to kill this man when everybody is enraptured with what he can do? They're in a tough spot. And they're having to navigate not just that tough spot with the Jewish people, but in, 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 in Caiaphas alluded to it in that intro passage we read, they're having to navigate the fact that though they are occupied by Rome and in many ways are under, uh, under um, a kind of tyranny, they also have been given some level of freedom t- that they didn't have under other empires to still sacrifice at the temple, to still hold their Passover, to still do. And so they're trying to walk this balance and tightrope And so this is the triumphal entry. On Monday, we see Jesus is going to see a fig tree and curse it, and he's going to enter into the temple. And for the second time, he's going to cleanse the temple, unless, asterisk, if you think that the cleansing of the temple in the beginning of John, John just put out of order for, uh, for theological purposes, in which case it'd only be one time. 
You say, Pastor, what's all that about? It's just about, again, I told you, we're doing our best to reconstruct from the gospels what we have. And if you get before Jesus and he tells you he only cleaned it once, you should listen to Jesus in heaven and what he says and not our best attempts to put it together. But it seems to be that there's two times Jesus cleanses the temple. He's gonna go in, he's gonna cleanse out the money changers. And, and again, just with that scene, I think it's hard or maybe it's easy to just gloss over that scene. But I, that'd be a wild scene to take side of. It's Passover week. We've just been told Jews from all over the region are coming in early to purify themselves, to get ready for, for, for the feast. The temple would be crowded. It'd be bustling. The reason the money changers would be out there is because you've got all these crowds and they're gonna be ripping them off and selling them things and defrauding each other and committing robbery there in the house of the Lord. And all of a sudden, Jesus, the day before, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. He now comes into the temple and he is flipping tables. He is whipping people. He is driving people out. That would be quite the unsettling and radical scene. And of course, you know the heart of Jesus behind it. My father's house will be a house of prayer. It's in this same day on Monday that there will be some Greeks who will seek Jesus. Look with me back here in John 12. Now, verse 20, there were some Greeks, Gentiles, who were going up to worship at the feast, which tells you that even back then there was curiosity, religious curiosity, even among peoples. And if you know your geography, it's not like Greece and Israel are next door neighbors. Take some effort to get, to get from one to the other. They came to Philip, who was from Bethesda of Galilee, or Bethsaida from Galilee. Remember, that's a Gentile region. And began to ask him, sir, we wish to see Jesus. And Philip came and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip came and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them saying, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And of course, um, he's going to go down in verse 27. Now my soul has become troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But it is for this purpose I come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice out of heaven, I have both glorified it and will glorify it. So the crowd of people who stood by and heard it were saying it had thundered. Others were saying an angel had spoken. I simply read that to say, obviously, you see there's even foreigners seeking Jesus. You see Jesus is preparing even then still. He is pointing his disciples towards the crucifixion, what's going to happen. And you even see then there are supernatural events occurring right there in the midst of what we know is going to be a week where the majority of the city is going to turn on them. And so this is Monday. We come to Tuesday. We see the withering of the fig tree. We see uh, if, if you're going to lay it out in a, um, if you're going to lay it out, the way I've got it laid out in my notes, the subsection we called questions about Jesus's authority. We see this in Matthew 21. We see it in Mark 11, and we see it in Luke 20. It's small sections, sections in each, but it, it, what it is, is it's the attempt of some Pharisees. It's some attempt of some members of the Sanhedrin. Remember, fever pitch, the people are in Jesus's corner. The Pharisees have decided we've got to kill this man. And so these questions, they're going to come with questions challenging the authority of Jesus, trying to trip Jesus up so that Jesus has to pick between siding with what's popular for the people, but against the law or siding with what's, what would keep it right with Rome, but be hated by the people. They're trying to trip Jesus up. So Jesus is going to give the parable of the two sons, the parable of the vineyard, the parable of the marriage feast, all of which are parables, if you're familiar with them, which point to a Messiah figure coming and being rejected by those he comes to. Uh, and, and then judgment falling upon them, which is a reference to what is going there. You're going to see in these questions about Jesus' authority, you're going to see the, the attempt to try to tra tra trap Jesus 
Jesus, who do you give this money to? Of course, Jesus' answer, well, whose picture's on it? Caesar. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. And they can't trap him in any, in any way there. You're gonna have the question of Jesus. What's the greatest commandment? And of course, what is Jesus' answer? The greatest commandment is this, that you love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, that you love your neighbor as yourself. And just by the way, we've touched on this many a times. That is, that is right out of Deuteronomy chapter, uh, chapter six. And that, that is the greatest commandment. What is the essence of what does it mean to be a Christian? It is in terms of what, what is our, how do we relate with God? Well, it's to love the Lord God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And by the way, just to make sure we all clear, heart, soul, mind, and strength, the Western mind, and this is not a knock on those of us, all of us have grown up in Western culture, would dissect that. Heart, soul, mind, and strength. Heart, emotions, mind, thoughts, soul, spirit, strength, body. That's not what it means. It's, 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 a, it's an expression. It's a first century Jewish expression to say, love the Lord God with the totality of your being. There's no part of my being, spiritual or physical, that should not be used in complete and total love for God. And the second command flows out of that. By the way, you can't live out the second command rightly if you're not living out the first command. The, this is, the first command is not love your neighbor as yourself. The first command is love the Lord your God with all your being. Out of that flows the second commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. Which is on a practical level, if you want to apply that in society, it means if you really want to have a society where neighbors love one another, you've got to correct the first problem to really get to that problem. Again, got to keep moving. There's a lot we can unpack. Ultimately, on Tuesday is going to end with two key with two key events, or at least Tuesday from the public standpoint. Uh, in Matthew 23, Mark 12, Luke 20, Jesus is going to to vehemently denounce the scribes and Pharisees for the last time. Not only that, but in in that in the moments after, he's going to observe a widow who takes her meager mite. And, and gives it unto the Lord, and he's going to make a point to his disciples that it's about the heart and not about the number that you can brag on. And I'm being super simple because there's certain things I want to make sure we've got time to get to here. Those two events, thus ends the public ministry of Jesus. Tuesday afternoon of Passion Week, as far as we know from Scripture. Again, we don't know what happened on Wednesday, but on Tuesday afternoon, and when he leaves the temple, that will be the last time that Jesus is in the temple. And, 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 and as far as we know, it will be the last time that Jesus is in the temple until he goes and smashes through those east gates in his return. So that, that ends the, the public ministry. But here's where we go. Tuesday afternoon or evening, he's going to take the disciples. They're going to leave out of, uh, of the temple. They're going to go over down, down the, the brief Kidron Valley, which... All of this is happening here in Jerusalem. Uh, uh oh. The slides, what happened? Uh, I just clicked change slide. Meanwhile, while that gets work, we'll, we'll, keep, we'll keep going here. I want you to turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 24. Hopefully that'll come back up because there's a certain there's a certain two pictures I want to see. Matthew 24, they're going to go across the small little Kidron Valley. They're going to go to the Mount of Olives and have what is called the Olivet Discourse. Matthew 24 records it. And here's, here's what I want you to see. Uh, look what it says, verse one. Jesus came out from the temple. He was going away when his disciples came up to the point to point out the temple buildings. 
He said to them, do you, do you not see these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another, uh, which will not be torn down. And let me back up for a second. Uh, look with me at verse 37, uh, Matthew 23, verse 37. Jerus- this is Jesus. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones, uh, those who, and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate, for I say to you from now on, you will, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus is weeping over Jerusalem because he knows Jerusalem has rejected him. And really, even you go, well, wait a minute, they haven't fully rejected him, yet, but, but he knows. Those people are still wrapped up in what they think he's going to do politically, not wrapped up in what he's going to do spiritually, which is what their real problem is. Jerusalem has rejected him because of their rejection of Jesus. The zealot movement will eventually reach a fever pitch 40 years later. And as he sits there and looks at Jerusalem and sees that temple mount from the Mount of Olives, Jerusalem will be razed to the ground and obliterated, absolutely decimated. And you see a grief in the heart of God as Jesus is God in flesh. You see a grief and a sorrow at the persistent unbelief of people. Here's what I want to show you. This is today uh, the Dome of the Rock. This is the temple Mount Complex. This right here is what's the Kidron Valley. It's not, it's not huge. So there's a road going through here. This is all sloping down. There's a road, and then this starts to slope back up. That's it. That's the Kidron Valley. It's not some gigantic, like, can't see the other side. You could take a baseball and throw it right across. Here's what it would have looked like in Jesus' day. The temple would have been huge, standing off. Here's your Kidron Valley. Here's your east gate. So you can imagine them coming out, walking, coming out the wall, crossing over. And as you go up, again, the, the map looks weird uh, because it's, you're looking at a flat image, but all of that where those trees are, that's going back uphill up the Mount of Olives. That's the Garden of Gethsemane, actually, and then coming back up the Mount of Olives. This is what Jesus is looking at. It says in verse 3, chapter 24, verse 3, he was sitting on the Mount of Olives. The disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when these things will happen. What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Now, I want us to pay attention real clearly. Let me just give you the proviso. Jesus is going to mention some things in here that have to do with the end times. And our focus tonight is not unpacking, well, what, when all is this going to happen in the end times? What is this? I just want us to notice what Jesus actually tells his disciples to do. Because it's, it's, I think it's very pertinent for a lot of, what a lot of us feel today. Jesus answered and said to you, see to it that no one misleads you. Number one, make sure that as things lead up to the end, nobody misleads you, that no one deceives you. You need to pay attention and make sure it doesn't happen. Why? For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and will mislead many. Why do you need to make sure you're not misled? Because there's gonna be a bunch of people who come in my name and whether they claim to be the Christ or whether they are teaching false truth, saying it's from the Bible and of the Lord, I think both apply there. And they are going to mislead many. It doesn't say there's going to be some people who claim some false things. And you know, if, as long as you stand up, not many people, it says a lot of people are going to go that way. It's going to be popular to go believe that. It's going to be convenient and acceptable instantly in our day, applying this to our day. I think of so I think of 
what would once upon a time have been called liberation theology, that today you would call what was now what, what you would call more commonplace progressive Christianity. Jesus is all about love. It doesn't matter what you identify as. It doesn't matter how you seek your sexual pleasure. It's all about love. Jesus is good with it. Jesus, Jesus would never, I'm, I, I see stuff all the time. I'm so tired of, of Christians, uh, Christians not loving and accepting everybody. Well, Jesus loves and accepts everybody in terms of he absolutely loves you and he'll be, he'll be kind to you, but he doesn't accept you on your terms in terms of declaring you righteous. There's something else that goes on there. But I am watching people in droves go after all sorts of variations of that kind of theology. Um, you know, once upon a time, if you were to look at a passage like Acts 2 or Acts 4, where it talks about how the early church voluntarily held their possessions in common to best help each other, you would read in, in a couple commentaries, hey, this is not, this is not a, a, you can't use this to advocate for Christian communism. And you kind of read that and go, what a weird note. Do you know how many times teaching young people today, I have to point out that that's not advocating for Christian communism in society? Because that's part of the progressive agenda. Many will come in my name mislead. You better make sure that you're not misled. Two, you will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. He says for for nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom in various places. There will be famine and earthquakes. And he says, and these are just the beginning. Then they will deliver you to tribulation. They will kill you. You will be hated by all nations. There will be no nation in this world that will give you safe harbor. At that time, many not only will be led into false things, many will fall away, just flat out reject They'll betray one another. They'll hate one another. False prophets will realize and will mislead many because lawlessness is increased, because sin is just more and more accepted. People's love will grow cold. Now, I skipped over a key part. Look back with me in, in verse six. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See to it that you are not afraid. Don't be misled. And as you see and hear of everything going from bad to worst to worst to even more worst, I know that's not proper grammar. <laughs> do not be afraid. Now, if we're honest, unless you're just a, probably an adrenaline junkie personality who probably has some like chemical imbalance with your things you should be afraid of, Unless you're that, that's a hard command to live. And I'll just, I'll just be candid. And part of why I wanted to make sure we, we get to this point, and, and even if we don't move much past this night, that's fine. I don't know if we're, if, if, I, what I know is we're one day closer today than yesterday. That's what I know. I don't know if we're on the one-way track to the end in terms of like it's going to be in our lifetimes, I don't know if we're going to see somehow God's going to allow all these things that are moving in our society and allow the bottom to drop out of them as people discover the fulfillment they think is there is not. 
And all of a sudden, in, in, in facing a little bit of persecution, the church gets refined and we're willing to stand and proclaim the gospel with a boldness and grace and clarity. And all of a sudden there's a third great awakening in our nation and maybe even beyond in the, I don't know. I don't know. What I do know is, and I made this comment today in the office, what I do know is the world that I remember at four felt a whole lot safer than the world that I know at 34. And I'd be lying if from a human standpoint, I don't tell you, I'm kind of worried, what is it going to be like when I'm 68? Will I even be here at 68? I don't remember hardly any of my friend's parents having to talk about whether or not we could watch Fox Kids or ABC Kids or Disney Channel. Parents today are having to actively think about whether or not they'll keep their Disney Disney, uh, Plus subscription because of what kids can find on there. It is a terrifying world every time you turn on the news. And if you have loved ones, my, what kind of world am I going to raise my daughter in? And I can't just wall her off and hide her, but how do I disciple and also protect her rightly? I have plenty of reasons to be afraid. And the level and the speed with which we get bombarded with news and, I'm not, and our response shouldn't be to go take our head as a believer and hide it under a rock and not know what's going on in the world. Some of you, you, you did grow up and come of age uh, in, the, in, the, in the early part of the Cold War where you did have nuclear fallout drills. My generation's only ever read about that in history books. And now we're talking about that again. Except now we're talking about nations that have bombs that are a whole lot bigger and go a whole lot farther. The whole point is this. I fear for many of us in the church who aren't misled that it's very easy for us to become afraid. To live from fear to fear, from one news cycle to the next news cycle. To live in fear of what could be. And maybe that's just me, and that's fine. And if it is, and this is just a little pastor confessional to the rest of the church body, and that's great. And you can go, well, that was a waste tonight, but glad we could... Make you feel better, Pastor. I suspect I'm not. Because you've got kids, you've got grandkids, you've got great grandkids. Are you going to finish your last breaths in the comfort of your family? Or are you going to finish your last breaths in a gulag or a prison camp? Doesn't take that long. In less than 10 years, Dietrich Bonhoeffer went from preaching in a church and teaching in a seminary to hanging in the gallows. Doesn't take that long. But church family, we got to understand. And part of the reason the command all throughout Scripture, do not fear, is because there is no part of God that is fear in terms of being afraid. Fear the Lord, yes. That's a different kind of fear than being afraid. And if we live afraid... We will either fail to be bold or, inversely, we may be an absolute jerk being too bold. If we're afraid, we may find ourselves more passionate and advocating for things that could alleviate our fear rather than 
living out the purpose and call of God for the kingdom of God for all eternity. Look what he says here in that same passage. We didn't go far enough. Look at verse 13. The one who endures to the end will be saved. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached to the whole world as a testimony to all the nations. We have a mission, church family. We talked last week, uh, in the last week with the fact that everyone in here, if you are in Christ and God has still given you breath, you are called to be faithful, to steward the life, the talents, the time, the resources, the finances, what God has entrusted to you. God has called each one of us to faithfulness. And part of that faithfulness is God has given us a mission and it is not a mission that we will accomplish living in fear. It's a mission we will accomplish as we walk in humble confidence and are driven by the power of the Holy Spirit in a world that absolutely hates us but cannot stop our King. Else in this passage, it's interesting in this passage, uh, look what it, he, he describes several different things. He says, as far as his return, but of that day and hour, verse 36, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven or the Son, but the Father of Lone, for the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days... Before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. They did not understand the flood came and took them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. There'll be two men in the field. One will be taken, one will be left. Two grinding at the mill. One will be taken, one will be left. Therefore, be on the alert. Be on the alert. Ironically, what he says, and I think this is probably how it play out, Whenever the end comes, obviously there's going to be upheaval and disaster in a way that the world's never seen before. And I think somehow in the same way, people are still going to be living life just like they've always lived it. Blind to every last sign taking place to point them that Jesus is the Christ. And what he tells us is, be on alert. Now here's... Be on alert. Again, I'll be getting careful for the sake of time. There's one last part we got to get to here. Be on alert does not mean live your life enamored with always figuring out which part of the end times is this and where are we at and what's going to happen. Because elsewhere, Jesus says, when the Son of Man returns, not will he find people with perfect eschatology. He said, when the Son of Man returns, will he find faith? Or maybe you could translate this way. Will he find faithfulness? Now, don't get me wrong. I, I know there's something... We'll, we'll eventually, we'll, we'll do, I will walk you through, we'll look at end times and eschaton, what all the Bible says, so I promise, I'm not just gonna leave you hanging there. But sometimes I think we as believers can also fall in that camp of always trying to figure out, well, is this this, is this this, are we here, is this now? I mean, here's the reality. Go back and study church history. Every time there's some major global upheaval, we all think Jesus is about to come back and he hadn't come back yet. But there's still billions of people who need to know Jesus and we got a job to do and we better make sure we don't get distracted by our fear, misled by false theology, or get passive just living life and drinking and eating and being merry and, giving, giving, and getting married and being, and what it said, we better make sure we're on alert and we're being faithful. And of course, in this same, in this same, uh, in this same discourse is when Jesus gives the parable of the talents. You got a master, he gives one five talents, one two talents, one one talent. The one with five goes and puts it to work, comes back, there's 10, the one with two, four, the one with one just buries it. And of course, what Jesus comes, you know, well done, good and faithful servant. Well done, good and faithful servant. You wicked servant. Get out of here. 
And so give I say this is the Olivet discourse is important. And I'll just be honest, my own life, as I continue to watch things in the world, I come back here to remind myself and to go, okay, don't hide my head under a rock, but I cannot live in fear. And I cannot get distracted. And we must stand for truth and not be misled and not allow people to be misled. Because the message of the kingdom has to go to the entire world. We got a mission to do, church family, and we're not done yet or else God would be, be here. He'd be back. Find the plan for the betrayal, the plot for Jesus. Third, uh, and that, that, that ends Tuesday. Uh, it's likely Tuesday night is, is the point where Mary of Bethany uh, anoints Jesus' feet with, with oil. Saw an interesting little note there that part of why that may have meant so much to Jesus is she seems to me maybe the one person who actually kind of gets what's about to happen since she actually anoints his feet. Doesn't mean she fully gets it, doesn't mean she, it was just kind of an interesting note to think of. Thursday afternoon, we see the preparations for the Last Supper in, Mar in Matthew 26, Mark 14, and Luke 22. Then you get to Thursday evening and you have the observance of the Last Supper, which begins John 13, with Jesus washing the disciples' feet, embodying and demonstrating to them God himself washing the dirt and grime and filth off the disciples' feet. That was the job for the slave, for the servant. And God himself takes that. Of course, Judas is going to depart to go betray Jesus. Jesus is going to predict Peter's denials. And it's interesting in, that little, in those sections with Peter's denials, um, it's interesting in those sections Peter thinks he's not going to fall, yet he's going to fall bad. And there's even an argument amongst his disciples, who's going to be the greatest? They still haven't figured it out. They've literally just seen the humility of God himself wash their feet and they still don't get it. And of course, Jesus says, that's when Jesus makes a statement that the greatest among you will be the least. And the least among you will be the greatest. Don't be like your Gentile rulers who lord their power over. And I'll just remind us, church family, and I'll remind it again and again, isn't it interesting as we're getting closer to the, to, to the death of Christ, the emphasis he places on humility. And I'll just remind all of us in this room, this isn't your church and it's not my church, it's his church. This church does not exist to be a country club for your style and your preferences or my style and my preferences. It exists for God's glory. It exists for his purpose. It exists for us to be the, the community of his family of ambassadors in this world. It exists, it exists for us to live on mission. And that means if we would all sacrificially love each other, no matter what we look like, no matter what we sounded like, no matter what age we are, we all walked in that kind of humility with God, which translated into a sacrificial serving of one another, we would have a whole lot more unified churches where you don't see the dividing walls around what we look like, what we sound like, or how old we are. So let's just remember that. That's easy to amen right now. We're all like, hey, this is a great time, pastor. Let's remember it when God leads us to make a hard decision. Let's remember it when God leads us to make an easy decision. And that's not hinting at anything, by the way. I just know how humility works. We all love to amen humility until you actually had to do it. And I'm not exempt from that. In here, he's going to institute the Lord's Supper. We looked at that deeply Sunday. Uh, in here, you're going to have John 14, uh, John, John 13 through the end of John, uh, John 17. All is taking place there at, the, at that Last Supper. 
Uh, and, and we don't even have remotely time tonight for me to even feel like we can fly over John 14, 15, and 16. There's so much dense theology for the Christian life that is packed into there, specifically around what does it mean for us to abide in Christ by faith? That's the key to the Christian life. The fact that it's better, Jesus says, it's better that I'm not physically among you pastoring your church, but it's actually better that I go to the right hand of God so that I will send the Holy Spirit who will live within you. He's gonna convict sin, both the world and you. He's gonna remind you of my words. He's gonna empower you. He's gonna, there's so much in there. And of course, then you get to Jesus's prayer in John 17, where Jesus prays. You think about what he said, don't be misled. And as he's praying for his disciples, he asked the father that he would set them apart, sanctify them in truth. And he says, your word is truth. Which goes back, tie back. You wanna know one of the ways we can make sure we're not misled? Abide in him by feasting on his word. But then of course that prayer, you get to that prayer, he prays for the unity of his disciples. He prays for God's protection. So I'm not praying that you take them out of this world, but that you guard them. And then he makes this statement, I pray not only for these disciples, but for every person who would believe through their word. Which means when you read John 17, in a very, very literal way, that is Jesus praying for you and for me today. Because we believe through the word of the apostles both what God used them to write down in the word. But I know that my parents led me to the Lord. I know that my mom, it would have been her parents, my dad, it would have been uh, some, some ministries of First Baptist Shuleth. I don't know how far you're up that tree you go to which one of the 12 you get to, but somewhere you're going to get to one of the 12. That's the same truth for all of us. So at that point, Jesus, they're going to depart, they're going to leave, and they're going to go to the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, here's what we're going to do for the rest of our time. I'm, I want to, let me give you an overview, but then I, I want to leave you with a certain point tonight. So we're, we'll inside a, a, little, a little different. Let me give you the basic overview. Once Jesus goes to the Garden of Gethsemane, here's what flows. That Thursday, Thursday night, early Friday morning, Jesus is in the garden, he's praying. They come and arrest him. There's, there's two parts, each made of three different parts. So there's six total parts to Jesus's trial. Three parts for the Jewish portion, three parts for the, the Roman portion. Je Jesus is going to go before uh, Annas, who's the father-in-law of the high priest that year, Caiaphas. Then he's going to go before Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin. It's going to be in uh, and in that Sanhedrin, there's going to be an informal unjust trial, unjust meaning they shouldn't be actually doing it before dawn. And then they're going to hold the formal thing to say, yep, you're guilty of blasphemy, send them to the Romans. Because all the Sanhedrin can do, all the Jews can do is recommend Jesus be killed. They can't take the law and actually kill him. They need the Romans to do that. So you've got, you've got those, those three aspects. In that time, Peter will deny Christ three times. And of course, you've got that part in, in the Gospel of Luke where it says, as he give that third denial and he hears, he hears the, the, the bird crowing, it says that Jesus looked up at him. And you talk about, a, I can't imagine the pierce, of course, and we know it pierces him because he runs out uncontrollably weeping. Jesus will then be taken to the, Ro the Roman portion of the trial, which will be three parts. He's brought before Pilate. Of course, Pilate's going, I don't want to mess with this. I don't, want, I don't want the Jews to get mad at me for what I decide. This guy's innocent. We can't kill him. I don't want the Jews to get mad for me, them to riot, and then I get in trouble with Rome. 
So when he hears that Jesus from Galilee, he goes, hey, great, Herod's in town. That's his region. I'm going to pass it off on him. And Herod, so they walk, Jesus walks over Herod. There's that portion. Herod mocks him. Jesus won't really talk to him. And they bring him back to Pilate for the second round. Pilate trying to think of ways to get out of this. Hey, we can release one prisoner. Why don't we release the, the horrible prisoner Barabbas? And of course, by this point, it says multiple times that the scribes and Pharisees, they have convinced the Jews. They have been out in the crowd working, twisting the Jews who five days prior crying Hosanna to now say, give us Barabbas and take Jesus and crucify, crucify. And there's all sorts of interest. If you really go in there and you look at the gospel accounts, both in, in Matthew and John specifically, and Matthew, Pilate's wife is going to come out, is going to call him in and say, hey, hey, Pilate, don't you have anything to do with that Jesus man? He has been in my dreams all night. Don't you have anything to do with him? And of course, you're going to have Pilate then. He's going to send Jesus off to be scourged and then to be crucified. And what does Pilate do? Give me that water. I wash my hands of this man's blood. The only possible thing in all of creation that could save Pilate. We looked at that all Sunday with the Lord's Supper and the necessary of blood for the forgiveness of sins. John's going to record Jesus being scourged. Matthew, the Roman soldier's mock. You're going to have Jesus taken out and crucified. At the, at the crucifixion, of course, they're going to strip him of his clothes, gamble for his clothes. They're going to hang him on the cross. They'll be there for six hours. He says seven different things on the cross, which begins with Father, Father, or Father, forgive them because they do not know what they are doing. It's going to end with it is finished and Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. The veil in the temple is going to tear. You're going to have the burial of Jesus. Now, I give you that overview because in our last 10 minutes, here's, here's what I want to share with you. I was asked this, because, and it's going to kind of walk back through this, but in a little different way. I was asked Sunday this question. Of course, Sunday we really looked at just the whole aspect of the Lord's Supper. What are we remembering and how do we examine? We, we allowed First Peter to do that in our lives. And I had, I had a, uh, a church member make a very astute observation and question. And he said, Peter tells us to conduct our lives as believers in fear. And he connects it because of what Jesus has done in shedding his blood. That there's this connection to living in the fear of God that flows out of really understanding what Jesus has done. And he added this and he said, and, and how does that fear, how does that interact? How does that fear, because what's the greatest commandment? Love. How does that fear come in to produce love in our lives? I, I can't word it precisely how, how he worded it. It was beautiful. But, and, and I said, well, let me share this with you. And so this is what I'm going to share with you as it relates to this tonight. Uh, many years ago in high school, I was working my way in my time with the Lord through the Gospel of Matthew. And, and, I'm, and, and, and I made it to the Garden of Gethsemane, which we've just mentioned. It's Matthew chapter 26, picking up in verse 36. If you read through it in Matthew, I read through it and I noticed, and it doesn't say anything about Jesus sweating blood. It doesn't say it there. It says that he's in agony, it says he's praying that he's in the garden, he's praying, Father, if there's any way for this cup to pass from me, let it be, but if not, not my will, yours be done. Well, so I flipped over to Mark. Well, it's not in Mark either. Mark's very similar to Matthew. Where you find it is you find it in the Gospel of Luke, which I realize is not that much of a shock. Luke was a physician. Of course, he would record something unique physically. 
And it says this in Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 22, verse 39. And Jesus came out, proceeded as was his custom to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples also followed him. When he arrived at the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them a stone's throw. He knelt down and began to pray, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. Now an angel from heaven appeared to him to strengthen him. And being in agony, he was praying very fervently and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. And so I, I, I remember, and if you're not familiar with this, I began to ask myself these questions and began to think through this. That is not some supernatural event. Uh, your body, every one of our bodies are capable. It's a, it's a medical condition where if there's enough of the right kind of stress placed on your body, your capillaries, the, ends of, the endings of your veins, which go out into your skin, your capillaries can actually burst Blood seeps out through your capillaries and will actually seep out, mix with your sweat, and you can sweat blood. It's not some crazy, weird, supernatural. It, it's a physical condition, but you have to be under a lot of stress. And so I've been in a process. Well, what kind of stress? Well, back then in high school, that's when ESPN would show these crazy powerlifting weight competitions on like the random Saturday morning where there's nothing on. And I'd watch these guys, these powerlifters. I watched, I'd just seen a guy squat 1,200 pounds that metal bar bending like this, and you've got 1,200 pounds. That's more than most of our cars. And you see him turn a red that, that is not human to turn that color red. And you understand, I can't imagine, and I, and I lift, I still lift, I lift a lot. I know what it's like to put stress on the body. I can't imagine that kind of stress on a body. And the worst I had ever seen is when this guy was squatting 1,200 pounds, he got a little nosebleed, a little trickle. Now, he got a nosebleed because that stress put on him and something kind of scraped off in his nose, which is very easy to do. If you just have a dry enough skin and your veins are close in your nose, you can get a nosebleed a lot. And so I went, man, Lord, what was so weighty and stressful that in your human body, your capillaries burst and you began to sweat blood? And no sooner than I had asked that question could I sense the Holy Spirit just quietly whisper back in my heart and mind, you, you're what's so heavy. Because here's what Jesus is about to walk through and what, we just, what I just gave you a brief overview on. Jesus is about to be arrested, betrayed by one of the men he spent the last three years of his life loving and pouring his life into. Wouldn't arrested by the Pharisees who hate him, he was betrayed by one of his own. When his disciples who are loyal to him realize he's not going to fight, they all flee. And Peter, who we all know seems to be the closest of all the disciples with Jesus, does in fact betray him using absolutely filthy and profane language to deny he ever knew Jesus, all while Jesus is in eyesight. Jesus will go through all of this completely and totally abandoned by everybody he loves. Except for maybe his mom, whom he's going to watch from the cross grieving as her son is pierced. So there is an emotional pain. But there's been a lot of people who faced abandonment and haven't sweat blood. 
Undoubtedly, one of the things Scripture is mostly silent on, but I have no doubt about, the spiritual warfare that was going on around him and, and at him would have, been, would have been at a fever pitch. But I don't know that it was the spiritual warfare that did it. Physically, and this is what probably more than anything we can identify with, Physically, it says several things. If you read all of the passages we've just mentioned, when Jesus, from the time Jesus is arrested, he is, he is beaten, he is punched, he's spit on, all throughout it. That's not pleasant to the body. And they're hitting him in his face. When you get to Pilate, and in your Bible, if you read the narrative, it doesn't matter which, which one of the gospels you pick up, your Bible's gonna say, Pilate delivered him over to be scourged or Pilate delivered him over to be flogged. And it's going to simply say, Jesus was scourged. Jesus was flogged. And it's going to move on. Now I'm going to do my best to not make it super gruesome, but I also want to not sanitize it. A scourging under Roman law, the victim would be bare-skinned. They would use a cat of nine tails whip, which is nine leather strands that at the end of which there would be bone, pottery, metal, whatever they could make something sharp. And that whip was designed to wrap around a body, to physically dig into the skin, and when you yank the whip back, to remove flesh. If he was whipped like Paul, according to Jewish custom, it would be, it would be the, 49, the 40 lashes less one, so 39 times. And you'll hear a lot of commentators say, Jesus probably whipped 39 times. I, I disagree. Because Jews didn't scourge Jesus. Professional Roman soldiers scourged Jesus. And if you study Roman soldier scourgings, Roman soldiers were trained to flog and scourge a victim to within an inch of their life. In fact, many victims passed out from the amount of blood loss while they were being scourged. Some victims died from scourging. It's not uncommon um, because enough flesh was removed, their bowels fell out. The scourging is brutal. The blood loss would have been massive. When they finish scourging him, they take a crown of thorns, some branches of thorns. And they, now, I, when I, even, and even back in high school, and I was thinking, and as the Lord was leading me through this, I was reading through these passages, I was thinking of, of rose thorns. When you go to Israel and you see the thorn trees that are right across in the Garden of Gethsemane, thorns, they look like nails. Some, some of them are, are, are quite thick. It says they made that and they set that crown on his head. And then it says, if you read it, they took reeds and they beat the crown into his head. Where do you bleed most profusely in your body? It's your head. So as I'm imagining the physical thing, of course, and they take the robe that Pilate, Herod used to mock him, they put it on him. He's got to carry the cross beam. Of course, we know he doesn't make it, which makes sense now because of how much blood he's lost. He hasn't eaten or had anything to drink in, in 12 hours. He's dehydrated. They're going to take him to the cross where they're going to drive nails in, in the palms of his hands and into his feet. Specifically, and the, and the cross was not just happens chance. The cross was a very scientifically designed torturous death, perfected by the Romans. Those nails would pierce nerve endings. Nerves would be screaming throughout his body. When the cross was put into the ground, the jud of it going into the, to the cross hole was enough that it usually dislocated a, a man's elbows and shoulders. 
Now that means even more to me today because as a youth pastor, I dislocated my shoulder and trying to walk 100 feet from, from where I put, changed my shoes to my car, I nearly passed out three times from the amount of pain going through my body. What it also means if your shoulder's dislocated is you don't die on a cross from, from blood loss necessarily. You don't die on a cross from the pain. You die on a cross from suffocation because of how it's designed. The only way then, if your arms and elbows are, by the way, having separated my shoulder, I couldn't even open a drawstring bag much less have pulled my weight up and essentially done a pull-up on nails in my hands. Meanwhile, the, the wood scrapes up and scars and, and splinters my body. You die of suffocation. Now, I give you all that to say, for most of us, you can describe that in such a way that if you've ever had any kind of injury, even me as I kind of travel, I, I, can, I can feel that queasy feeling. I can feel that nauseous feeling. I can, I can feel that. I can, but let's be really clear. Jesus is not in the garden saying, Father, please take away this really hard physical pain from me. Because there's been plenty of men who died on crosses and who were scourged and never sweat blood. No, what made Jesus' death unique is that he became my sin on that cross. That out of the love of God and Christ's love for me, he became the propitiation, 1 John 4.10, the atoning sacrifice where on that cross in that battered, tattered, rejected, alone place, he in six hours as only one who is fully God could do, drank the eternity of hell I deserve rightfully. And so as I sat there that night and said, Lord, what is so burdensome you, Wes, you're the burden. Because if I'm not a sinner, Jesus doesn't need to die for me. And in that moment, why, Lord? Because I, and Scripture's clear, whether it's John 3, 16, whether it's 1 John 4 that I just quoted, you can go to a handful of other passages why does God send Jesus? Why does Jesus come for God so loved? Not that I loved. I was by nature dead in my trespasses and sin and totally against him, but God so loved. Church family, God so loved you that Jesus swept blood on your behalf because he bore hell for you. Church family, God so loves Pflugerville God so loves Austin that every man, woman, boy, and girl, whether or not they are praising his name today or not, he so loved them, he bore hell for every single one of them. And when you come to faith in Christ, you can experience that love. And for those of us who are in faith in Christ, the reason you can connect fear to that is you know what that produces in our life as we begin to comprehend what is the height and the depth and the breadth and the width of the love of God that is for us in Christ Jesus. Ephesians chapter three is exactly what Paul says, which is we are filled with the fullness of God and we fear him not out of terror, but in joy. We take him seriously in our lives out of joy. Why? Because we weren't redeemed with perishable things like gold and silver, but with the precious blood of a lamb. And so Jesus goes to that cross, demonstrating his heart 
Father, forgive them. It's the first words of Jesus on the cross. All these people who are hurling insults, who are hawking loogies, who are spitting, who are vile. Father, forgive them. You want to know why we can't be afraid as we watch the world go from bad to worse to worse to even worse? Because Jesus died to save that world. We're the light of to that, we're his light to that world. We've been given the message of reconciliation to proclaim to that world, even when it takes our lives. And every day we ought to look, wake up and look at that world with the same attitude and heart. If we really understand the love of Christ and conduct our life in fear, we look at that world. It doesn't mean we don't call wrong wrong. That's not what I mean. But it means even when we call wrong wrong, we understand that as we would live and move and breathe in the world, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Because by the way, we were once one of those. Of course, Jesus on the cross, oh, there's, there's so much, but, but we'll stop. He says, it is finished, which is one of the greatest statements of all. Because Jesus didn't stop the work of the, on the cross. He finished it. Which is what we celebrate in the Lord's Supper. And we looked at that Sunday, and so they will take him down off the cross. Of course, the veil in the temple tears because no longer is the holy of holies a place in the temple. In fact, Scripture is quite clear for those of us in Christ. Our bodies are the holy of holies for God. He lives within us. All sorts of ramifications for that. Of course, they will take the body of Jesus off the cross and make sure he is buried quickly into a tomb, a marked tomb, a rich man's tomb, which would not be normal for, the, for someone hanging on a cross, a specific tomb, which is key for what we'll look at next week with Jesus' resurrection and his appearance after he rises. So I appreciate you, church family. Thanks for letting me go a couple minutes over. I know some had to bounce out for choir. Uh, let me pray to close this tonight. We'll be excited to see you Sunday. Uh, Sunday be a good day as we kick off the winter renewal and uh, be a good day in worship um, as, uh, as we get together. Um, I hope as we go out, that we really do so just like we looked at Sunday, remembering what Jesus has done. Because it's on the cross that the fullness of God's love is on complete and total display. And when we really comprehend that, it does absolutely change our lives as believers. As for 2,000 years, it still does today, and it'll do until for all eternity. Father, thank you for um, sending Jesus. Thank you for what you've done. May we never fail to be amazed. But Lord, may each one of us, every one of my brothers and sisters in this room, those who couldn't be in this room tonight, those who are part of our church family, Lord, may every one of us be, would you open our, um, open our eyes to fully grasp and comprehend what is the height, the depth, and breadth and width of your love for us in Christ Jesus so that, Lord, we would live the Christian life in this world, not half-heartedly, not half-full, but filled with your fullness that there would be a joyful fear in our lives, Lord, that we take you seriously, not because we're terrified of you, but because it is a joy to know you. It is a joy to be able to call you Abba, Father. Lord, as we live and move and breathe in a world, may we not do so misled. May we not do so in fear. May we not do so distracted. May we be alert and may we do so, Father, with a heart that recognizes this world is a rough place. And it's a rough place because it is in rebellion against you. You are the hope for this world. 
and you have entrusted us with that message and you've not left us on our own to figure out how to do it. But Jesus, you said that's why you send the Holy Spirit and Holy Spirit, you live within us to enable us to do it. So Holy Spirit, open the doors, fill us with boldness, guide our steps, make us the people you want us to be, make us the church you want us to be, that we would be a beacon of life until you return. It's to you we look, Jesus, and it's in your name I pray, amen.